In June 1982, the Soviet foreign minister announced at a UN session in New York that the Soviet Union would never be the first to use nuclear weapons. He read a message from the Soviet president, Brezhnev, who said he was the voice of reason and he asked if other nuclear powers would follow Moscow's leads and, quote, follow our good example or push the world downhill. Well, that was really nice of the Soviets, wasn't it? Setting a good example like that. After all, if every nuclear power adopts a similar no-first-use policy, then, logically, nuclear weapons will never be used. And we will all live in a land of flowers and hearts and teddy bears. Except no one was buying it. No dice, Brezhnev. The announcement was regarded by the West as pure propaganda, designed to make non-Western countries think of the Soviets as the good guys. It would also have tied NATO's hands if war had broken out in Europe. The US Secretary of State at the time said that no first-use pledge from NATO would mean the Soviets basically had permission to unleash conventional war in Western Europe without the threat of a nuclear strike. When the Red Army was so huge, what deterred them from rolling into Western Europe if there was no nuclear threat? So no, the West didn't swoon and cheer and go dewy-eyed when the Soviets announced they would never strike us first. It was seen as nothing but a ploy. And so, in 1993, after the Soviet Union had collapsed, when the Soviets announced they were ditching that old no-first-use pledge, everyone just shrugged, because we had never taken it seriously anyway. When the Russians uh, made that announcement in 1993, the New York Times said it was much the same as Brezhnev's announcement back in 82. That is, done for show, done for effect, done to send a signal or make a public statement. This was something that the politicians and the spokesmen were discussing, not the scowling generals clinking with medals. It was all for show. So post-Soviet Russia made it known in the 90s that they, they might, could, perhaps, use a nuclear weapon against the West. And the West sighed. Yes, Russia, we knew that. We knew that all along. We knew it then, and Russia, we know it now. There's obviously a lot of talk just now about whether Putin would, as they say, press the button. That's a very Hollywood scenario, isn't it? The madman dictator pushing the red button and blowing up the world. It's unlikely. Unlikely that he would, in a moment of suicidal fury wipe us all out. But the thing which worries me, or one of the many things which currently worry me, is that ordering a nuclear strike doesn't necessarily have to be a madman suicidal act. It doesn't have to mean Armageddon, the nuclear holocaust. There exist smaller nuclear weapons known as tactical 
nuclear weapons. Setting one of those loose would mean terrible devastation and death, yes, but not the end of the world, the death of civilization, a lethal nuclear winter. And that frightens me because these tactical nuclear weapons are therefore far more credible and usable. They are not the massive megaton thermonuclear world enders, no, but they could be the small stepping stone which eventually takes us there. Things could escalate. My worry is that once you launch a tactical nuke, even if it's small, even if it's aimed only at a precise military site, you've opened Pandora's box. You have crossed the nuclear threshold and things will surely escalate. I imagine the nuclear threshold being sealed by a huge blast door and it's sealed shut tight by history, by the passage of time and the stifling weight of all our fears that have amassed since August 1945. Massive and hefty this door, weighing tons, solid and secure. Do not pass. Hell is on the other side. This door has never been opened. How could you even try to open it? But a tactical nuclear weapon is like a tiny, delicate silver key. Slide it into the lock of this monstrous great door and it would slide open easy. So what is a tactical nuclear weapon? They are the smaller nukes designed not to vaporise a city, but to strike a specific military target or be lobbed around on the battlefield. So they will have a lower yield and a lower range than the big guys. Although when we talk of a tactical nuke being small, it's worth bearing in mind that the bombs which were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki would, these days probably be considered as tactical. But you can also shrink them right down and get very small tactical nuclear weapons, such as the Davy Crockett, which weighed only 51 pounds. It was basically a gun which fired a small nuclear warhead with a yield of 20 tonnes of TNT. 20 tonnes. Now, compare that to the big Tsar Bomber, which had a yield of 50 million tons of TNT. So that should put things in perspective. That's the spectrum of nuclear weapons from 20 tons at one end to 50 million at the other. But even though tacticals are smaller, they are still nuclear weapons, of course. And even the smallest of them would still be far worse than a massive conventional explosion. So let's not ever be lulled into any false sense of security. A nuke is still a nuke. And I believe their use would still have a massive risk of escalation until we are dealing with the big ones. Consider the war games and exercises which were carried out to test the effects of tactical nukes. I turn here to Professor Lawrence Friedman's book, The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy, And he tells us of Operation Sagebrush, 
a war game in Louisiana, a state the same size as Greece and Portugal, where they played out a scenario of dropping 70 tactical nukes on various military targets in the state. The result of this exercise was that, quote, all life in the state of Louisiana had ceased to exist. Then there was Operation Carte Blanche in West Germany. The exercise imagined 355 tactical weapons used. Even without counting radiation effects, there would have been 1.7 million dead and 3.5 million wounded. This figure is more than five times the German civilian casualties in the Second World War. And this, this is so-called limited nuclear war with small nukes of low yields. The results of these war games surely demonstrate that you should ditch any talk of limited nuclear war or any hopes that you can use these smaller tactical nukes and hope to avoid civilian casualties or mass death. Forget it. Men might march off to a battlefield, as in the old days of war, but once the tactical nukes start being deployed, the civilians will be caught, the fallout will spread, the thing will surely escalate. How can you have a limited nuclear war? The famous uh, Henry Kissinger once thought you could. He wrote a best-selling book in the 50s called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, which I admit I have not yet read. And it argued that a limited nuclear war could occur as long as certain rules of engagement were observed by the belligerents. These rules should be, one, no hydrogen bombs. Two, encourage the use of the cute little tacticals. And three, any cities more than 500 miles from the battlefield are off-limits. Now, I'm just Julie McDowell, the little old atomic hobo. What can I tell Henry Kissinger? But I cannot, I just cannot accept that in the fog of war, both sides would abide by such rules. Once you're dealing with the horror of nuclear conflict, even on a so-called limited basis, how could things not escalate? I can't see it being like the the famous Christmas football game on the Western Front where both sides stop the fighting for a, a bit of a kickabout. No, it just seems to me hopelessly naive to think you can blow the whistle and call a neat and tidy halt to nuclear war. But nonetheless, many strategists and advisors were keen on exploring the idea of tactical nukes, using them to conduct a limited nuclear strike or engage in a limited nuclear war. The Americans looked favourably on the idea in the 1950s because at that point they were far ahead of the Soviets in terms of tactical weapons. The Soviets were, of course, still building up their nuclear stockpile focusing on acquiring the big guys and didn't have anything to spare to build up a separate tactical pile. So yes, the Americans at that point had the luxury of exploring tactical nuclear warfare, knowing that the enemy couldn't yet 
match them in that particular endeavour. There was also the idea that tactical weapons make war what it used to be. It spares the women and children and lets men go off to the battlefield and fight it out alone. Military planners also looked fondly on tactical nuclear weapons because the strategic ones, the the monsters, had grown so big and so apocalyptic that they were becoming, in a sane world, unusable. No one in their right mind would launch these things. And so, arguably, they were useless. Just too terrifying to be utilised. Whereas tactical nukes, they make nuclear war possible again. You arguably don't need to be an absolute screaming madman to use them. And stemming from that argument, they also, arguably, make us safer as they reinforce nuclear deterrence. For nuclear deterrence to work, you have to fear what your enemy might do to you, yes, but you also need to believe that he might actually do it. They might use these nukes. And that's more believable if they're aiming some tactical nukes at you, rather than a big fat Tsar Bomba or two. But don't we have a bit of a paradox there? On the one hand... Tactical nukes reinforce deterrence as they are more credible. You don't need to imagine yourself in hell before imagining they might be used. But, and I'm taking this argument from Professor Friedman's book, quote, if the effectiveness of the deterrent resides precisely in its certainty and its horror, then any attempt to reduce either the certainty or the horror will reduce the power to deter. So, I see that tactical nukes, they they give with one hand and take away with the other. They are a more credible threat, so they reinforce deterrence, but they are, on an individual basis, less awesome and less terrifying, and so they weaken the whole notion of deterrence which, after all, is based on nuclear weapons making war too horrible to be fought. And so, what then? The only answer is not to use nuclear weapons, any of them. But would someone do it? Would someone press the button? Of course, we're thinking, surely, of Russia at the moment. Well, as mentioned at the start of the podcast, they long ago ditched their no-first-use policy, but it was probably quite meaningless anyway. I used my subscription to the Financial Times uh, paid for by my Patreon money, thank you patrons, and I went into the FT's archive and found that Russia in 2020 said that they reserved the right to use nuclear weapons, quote, for the prevention of an escalation of military actions and their termination on conditions that are acceptable for the Russian Federation and or its allies. The FT tells us that this wording prompted a bit of concern because previously 
Russia said they would only use nukes first if, quote, the very existence of the state is threatened. That line is now missing. They're now saying they would use them merely to prevent escalation of military actions. The very existence of the state doesn't need to be called into question before they will be used. So some commentators have interpreted that as a lowering of the bar for Russian nuclear use. Russia's military doctrine allows them to use a nuclear weapon, quote, to prevent an escalation of military action. Okay, so with Ukraine, could they use a tactical nuclear strike to win that war, to frighten NATO off? I admit this does worry me. We see a lot on the news, of course, and on Twitter, of how the war is going badly for Russia. And uh, last night, the story broke that they had um, allegedly gone to China to ask them for weapons. Their advance has slowed or ground to a halt in many places, and of course this is good news, they are the invader. But it does sometimes send a chill down my spine, because if things get even worse for them, if they get stuck, humiliated, desperate, might they decide to turn to a tactical nuke, to turn things around? Or you could even turn it on its head, might they launch a tactical nuke not to turn the war around, but to draw NATO in, to force NATO to act? Thinking there, of course, is that that would benefit Russia, because it would turn the perception of the war on its head back in Russia with Putin's um, domestic audience. Of course, at the moment, he does not refer to it as a war. It's a special military operation because, quite rightly, many Russians might be horrified at the prospect of a war against Ukraine. But if Putin could say to his people, it's not a war against Ukraine, it's a war against NATO, the, the decadent West... That would be a far easier sell for him, wouldn't it? So could they resort to a tactical nuclear strike? Well, as said, their doctrine does allow for them to use nuclear weapons and the strategy has been called escalate to de-escalate. Not exactly a very catchy phrase. The phrase is not found in any Russian military texts, but that is how the West have interpreted the Russian doctrine. Escalate to de-escalate. So what does it mean? If Russia is hit with a massive conventional attack, which it can't repel or defeat conventionally, they could move up a gear, escalate, to nuclear use. And would do that in the hope of de-escalating the conflict, i.e., Winning. I turn here to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists for a deeper explanation of that doctrine. It tells us that after the Cold War, relations between Russia and the West were of course a bit more relaxed. The nuclear threat had receded. But then came the Kosovo conflict. And apparently Russia watched NATO's actions there with great unease because they saw the excellent conventional firepower NATO had. 
and Russia also looked nervously to their own troubles in Chechnya, which shared some characteristics with the Kosovo War. The Russians wondered then, might we see NATO crossing our border to do the same thing in Chechnya? So, in 1999, the Russians began working on a new military strategy, and it was supervised by the Secretary of Russia's Security Council, uh, Mr. Vladimir Putin. This new strategy brought in the idea of escalate to de-escalate, which said if we are attacked with conventional weapons, we can indeed escalate to nuclear use in order to bring it to an end. Not a full-scale, world-ending nuclear exchange, but a limited nuclear strike. And that will force the enemy to back down, or will deter him from getting involved in the first place. And as we've discussed, for your nuclear deterrent to work, it does have to be a credible, believable threat. And so the bulletin tells us that since the doctrine was introduced in 2000, all large-scale military exercises that Russia conducted beginning in 2000 have featured simulations of limited nuclear strikes. But the Americans have criticised the idea that you can use a limited nuclear strike to de-escalate a situation, and I agree. It does indeed sound like trying to put out a fire by pouring oil on it. In 2015, America's uh, Deputy Secretary of Defence told the House Committee on Armed Services, quote, anyone who thinks they can control escalation through the use of nuclear weapons is literally playing with fire. Escalation is escalation. And nuclear use would be the ultimate escalation. Now, these tactical nuclear weapons, does Russia have a lot of them? I turn here to the archives of The Economist, again, subscription paid for by my patrons, And I found an article saying that after the Cold War, America got rid of most of its tactical nukes, whereas Russia went in the opposite direction and began acquiring more and more. This was sparked by two things. Russia's sudden weakness in its conventional forces, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, and the loss of the gigantic Red Army, but also by seeing the conventional American largesse on display in the Gulf War and subsequent campaigns involving NATO. The Russians uh, could not hope to match it. And so they stocked up good and proper on tactical nukes. The Economist says, quote, seeing them as a way to offset the weakness of its conventional forces. And yes, Russia has, of course, built itself up again since the collapse of the USSR but it hasn't ditched all those tactical weapons it amassed. And it currently has about 2,000 of them, say The Economist. By contrast, America has just a few hundred low-yield gravity bombs in Europe. A few hundred versus 2,000 on the Russian side. So Russia, of course, have a lot of tactical nuclear weapons. And they have a military doctrine which allows for them to be used to de-escalate a conflict. And they are currently 
in the midst of a conflict which hardly seems to be going as planned for them. And so I worry. I want brave Ukraine to win. And yet uh, a shadow does fall across my heart every time I hear of the military mess Russia might have got itself into because they have given themselves a set of rules for this scenario. One which allows them to go nuclear in order to de-escalate such a situation. The tabloid newspapers, of course, ran stories a week or so ago about nukes. What will happen if Vlad nukes London? What will it do to house prices? And of course, those papers all jumped to the worst-case scenarios because they want clicks, obviously. It was all quite ridiculous, and yes, we can relax. He's not going to do that. He's not mad. He's not suicidal, we assume. And then comes the fear again. The cold shadow over the heart. He doesn't need to be suicidal to order a limited nuclear strike. And we say, well, nuclear war, it'll never happen. It's unthinkable. But not if it's a tactical nuclear strike. That is all too thinkable. It is credible. It is possible. That's the nature of the tactical nuclear threat. That is its value. Right there. Well, my dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for letting me speak to you. I feel less alone and less anxious knowing that you're listening. Let me thank my patrons who fund this podcast and keep it uh, free of ads. I will never subject you to them as long as I have my dear patrons. And let me welcome my new patrons, Murray Tiptop, John Nye, Bapa Lind, Ryan and Graham Kamuk, who increased his pledge. Thank you to all of you. In this episode, I made use of archives from the FT and The Economist, both of which, of course, I have to pay for. And some of my Patreon money is used for that. So if you want to chip in some money towards the podcast, then please do look at my Patreon page. You'll find that at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you get various rewards if you subscribe, um, one of which is access to extra podcast episodes. So please do take a look and consider supporting me on Patreon. And remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com, and I'm on Facebook as Nuclear Britain. And I thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next week.